This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, I'm Noelle Lim. Today on Spotlight, we discuss the case for funding low-income communities or those in need in a more innovative way. We turn to Melissa Fu, Head of the Social Innovation Unit at Agency Innovasi Malaysia, or AIM, to tell us more. Good to have you with us. There may be common perception that it's risky to invest in helping the poor. What's your response to something like that? Basically, with all investments, it's just about the risk and the reward, right? How do you structure a model where you can minimise risk and then maximise the reward uh, in terms of the return, the financial or the impact return? So when you think of it that way, then you don't really um, sort of like isolate the communities or think, oh, this is investing in a poor, but you actually look at the business model or the impact model as a whole. And I think there is a huge opportunity and potential in investments in, say, low-income communities or, you know, say, um, rural areas, where then if you think about it that way, you realise that it's not risky. What about investing, like taking up equity, like taking up an equity in a social purpose organisation? Would that come with higher risks? It depends on uh, what we want, I mean, how we foresee. If we take equity in a very early stage investment, uh, for example, even a startup, the, the risks are high, as you know, and the rewards, we hope, are higher. Um, with social enterprises, I think we have to really understand why we're taking the equity stake in the social enterprise or social organisation and what we hope to achieve is our um, interest or is our expectation for a return, um, you know, 10x, 50x, or is it more on a you know, dividend basis per year? I would uh, say that some social enterprises actually have a lower risk of, uh, of failing um, because of the niche that they operate in, because it, it requires a lot of insider knowledge or uh, subject matter expertise to work with certain communities. And it's very hard to disrupt somebody who's entrenched in a certain community. So uh, social enterprises, you know, some of them have a lot of knowledge of the communities they work with, and that makes them very secure in that sense, in that space. So it's still quite uncommon, Malaysia, although I understand there are projects. Could you talk about some promising financing models that we could look into? In Malaysia, we have quite a large pool of capital for investment and also for philanthropic giving. So in, uh, you know, in one of the studies by Charitable Aid Foundation in Britain, uh, Malaysia was the top 10, the 10th most giving nation in the world, you know, uh, measured on helping others, donating money and, um, you know, giving uh, time, like volunteering. Um, but how do we then use them strategically, right? How do we not waste the fact that our uh, country and our citizens are very giving by nature? Um, and I think when you look at the investment world, so a lot of my work at uh, Agency Innovasi Malaysia right now uh, focuses on social finance. So we have a lot of um, NGOs, we have non-profits, we have social enterprises, and they all raise money in different ways. But when you look at the financing side of the, the social sector, uh, that's where my project focuses on right now. Um, and we also look at financial tools like being a venture capital investor, right? investing in social ventures. We look at venture debt and we also look at um, what is unique or into the social sector, which is the social impact bond, right? which is a public-private partnership. So these are all, I think, very interesting tools um, to really uh, design models that work in the social sector. And um, Malaysia is actually, I think, very innovative in, in this sense. Uh, we do a lot of pilot projects to test out which models work. 
Um, and the ones that we work, we hope the private sector and the government will then take and scale to larger funding sizes and larger amounts. To my knowledge, most of this giving is direct giving. Like if somebody needs a scholarship, then that's the amount that is given to the person. Could you talk about the social impact bond? In the social impact bond, we, al- we try to align the incentives a lot in this financial model. Why is government involved is because I always say when you design a model, we have to see who gains the most. Uh, when a social issue is addressed, right? Who gains the most when there is one less case of child abuse? Who gains the most when a single parent is gainfully employed or has ability to fund and raise the family? That's the government, actually. In this case, we when we see that the government is the ultimate gainer or the ultimate person who benefits, then we design a model where the government is involved by um, using a payment for outcomes type of methodology, So there are many um, models for um, social impact bonds, but they all sort of like work around a simple principle. Uh, We have an investor who invests in the project, and if the project meets certain KPIs or outcomes, uh, then the payer, or you know, in this case, as I mentioned, the government is always a very ultimate payer, uh, will then fund the project based on its cost savings or gains from this social issue being addressed. So in 2015 and then 2017, Kazana launched uh, Malaysia's first social impact bond for some of their educational projects and they call this bond the Sustainable and Responsible Investment Sukuk. If the project meets its targets, the investors get paid. In this case of Kazana's uh, Sukuk, who pays them? Is it Kazana or the government? Yeah, so in this case, I think um, Kazana channeled the funds to education. I believe it was via Yasan Amir, uh, tapping on institutional and also retail capital. Ultimately, I think the structure is similar, right? You know, if a certain educational outcome is met, then the subscriber to the bond is then receives a return based on the yeah the coupon rate and so on. In a new Malaysia, there's some prioritization of expenditure on the government side and as well as like institutional investors like Kazana and perhaps EPF as well. Um, there's that need to make sure they contain cost. So do you think that the social agenda might then take a back seat? What are some indications you're getting from the market? That's actually so much opportunity in the social sector, but I agree with you in, in terms of uh, government directly funding a social um, purpose or social issues, uh, there may be some prioritization in place, right, where we then have to turn to the private sector. So with a lot of our private sector partners that I work with, now I, I say to them, it's, it's your chance to, you know, take this ball and, and run with it. In my previous model for the social impact bond, I, um, I talked about the government being the payer or the funder. But what we are seeing overseas as well is that many foundations have actually started to use the social impact bond model to then fund their projects. Because I'm talking about the larger foundations where instead of them directly deploying, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions in funding, which is very hard to find like individual grantees who could uh, receive that, what they do is they use the social impact bond structure. They become the outcome payer. And then they, you know, they incentivize smaller foundations or investors to then be the investor in the social impact bond. What would make some of these companies receptive to issuing a social impact bond? I'm hoping that the success stories from what we've done with the Social Outcome Fund um, is going to be something that can help them use that as a roadmap or as a plan for their own social impact bonds or their own mini social impact bond issuance. 
Apart from social impact bonds, what other forms of funding can we look to? In terms of the ones with the most potential, I believe the public-private partnerships always offer the greatest potential for scale and impact in the social sector. Uh, in terms of highest returns, but then maybe highest risk, then you'd be looking at venture capital into social enterprises. Um, the important thing about equity investment into social enterprises is to really select the ones that align with your interests. So if you're expecting 50, 100x return, like, you know, with, with venture capital or early stage capital, then you need to select the social enterprises where the impact and the scale and the size of the organization go hand in hand. So examples like microfinance or fintech, these are the ones that the bigger they are, the more they make and the more impact they generate. Um, I've seen some models in food and agriculture, food and ag tech. I've also seen healthcare and education follow that trajectory. Um, the community development social enterprises, they may face challenges in terms of scale because they are focused on the community. So these type of um, SPOs may actually need more of uh, different types of funding, you know, maybe social venture debt, where they actually do make money, but they not, may not be designed actually to scale um, in a large way. So selecting the right tool, uh, selecting the right financial model and instrument is very important when selecting the SPOs. So what we hope to see with impact investors is for them to be really clear what they want. And if it's all about the impact, to then think impact first and financial model later. We'll be discussing Agency Innovasi Malaysia or AIM's uh, work on social outcome funds together with Melissa Fu, Head of Social Innovation Unit at AIM. Joining us today is Melissa Fu at Agency Innovasi Malaysia. So we were talking about um, your social outcome fund that AIM introduced in 2017. So where uh, recipients of this funding, such as non-profits, if they can solve a problem and they meet their targets, for example, cost savings similar to government interventions, what will happen then the government will pay back the full amount given by the original funder. It's a nice way to share the risks and it's to ensure that SPOs, social purpose organisations, do aim to achieve their targets. Could you give us an update on this fund that AIM has uh, introduced? Um, yes, so the Social Outcome Fund um, was launched by AIM in 2017. And I was um, heading that social innovation unit and we managed the social outcome fund uh, from the point of selecting the SPOs um, so and to the point of matching them with the private funders. Each of these projects were selected and started on a rolling basis. So our first project started in January 2018. Uh, second one in March 2018 and then and so on and so forth. So we have six projects fully funded so far and two of them because they started in January and March, the other ones where the investors have actually received their full uh, investment amount. Um, so they, they're considered a success. And in our case, the government actually allocated, I believe it was about 200000 for the first project and just under 180000 for the second. So government expenditure-wise, because these two investors have received their money, it was 380000 but the cost savings to government in terms of impact was just over a million, so 1.06 million. So we have a 3x return on impact. Um, in terms of cost savings to government, uh, we have about 600,000 just over that saved. So 2x return on cost savings, 1x to the investors and 3x in total impact. Could we walk through one of the projects, say PS the children, they were one of the recipients of the funding. PS's mandate is to prevent child sexual abuse. So how would the savings be measured? PS the Children, Protect and Save the Children is one of our newest 
projects, which is just about to be launched. Uh, so it's a good one to start. In 2015, uh, AIM commissioned a study where we looked at the cost of social issues to government. And what I mean by cost is actually I mean direct cost. So what government is spending for medicines, legal, police and welfare and any other costs associated with a single incident of child abuse. So why we did that is because we wanted to the cost to be as objective as possible and we did not actually factor in the indirect costs such as the opportunity costs over the lifespan of the child. The result of that study, uh, we covered 40 social issues, was that each incidence of child abuse, the government is spending between 50 to 60,000 ringgit per year in direct costs. So what this means is that if we manage to prevent, say, 10 cases of child abuse, um, we are actually directly saving the government 500,000 a year. So ultimately, any project that costs less than 500,000, the government should then be paying for, right? So PS the Children, their program costs 320,000 and they have to demonstrate at least 1.5 times which is a 480,000 ringgit cost saving to government. Then what we would do is then we would say that they have achieved their target and then the government would reimburse the investor with, um, with the original, with the 320,000. So it's a one-for-one one reimbursement um, after one year. So these are all one-year programs because the cost data that we have is based on one year. Why 1.5 times? So this was an arbitrary number that we selected because initially when we designed the model, we, we didn't want just at least one-to-one, right? We wanted to show that there could be a case for an investment here. So basically, because the government is saving 480000 on a 320000 project, the government actually has the ability to return anywhere between 320 and 480. When we designed it, we actually wanted to target a lot of the CSR and foundations where putting in a return on investment would then sort of really complicate their financial reporting. Uh, So we designed it as what we call a recoverable grant, so a one-for-one reimbursement mechanism. But technically, if we use the same model, we have the ability to give anywhere between 1 to 1.5x in a single year. How would PS the children be able to do this more efficiently than the government? Yeah, so the interesting thing about our social purpose organisations or the six ones that we have selected so far is they've all managed to demonstrate this cost savings value using different mechanisms. So some of them, they they do similar things in more cost-effective ways. Um, Like, for example, our first project, um, Suka Society, they provided early childhood education to the Orang Asli children using the Orang Asli youth as the teachers, right? So uh, by using the youth in their own village, we actually managed to do that at a more cost-effective method. Uh, With PS the children, actually, the way they demonstrated the cost savings wasn't that sort of like replacement or the same issue. But because child abuse is actually a very high-cost issue to government, so our efforts in prevention are actually being ramped up, I think, um, Uh, P.S. The Children and one of the other, uh, Suryana, one of the other child abuse-related SBOs in our fund, are working very closely with the Ministry of Women and Children and Family Development. So they are really, really ramping up the um, prevention in child abuse. So P.S. The Children actually has uh, one of the programs that they do is that they really are able to sort of work alongside the government in delivering these preventive measures. Talking about Suka, where their program is to empower Orang Asli youth to start their own preschool classes, you can measure cost savings, but what about quality? Do you measure that as well? 
the interesting thing is what we do is within the social outcome fund model as well as we engage an independent assessor. Uh, in this case, it's um, the Accounting Research Institute of UITM. So they are paid whether the project succeeds or fails. Um, and what they do is they then go into the field and they will measure not just the quantity or the number of students that are taught, but actually give direct feedback to the funder and us and the SBO about the quality of the program. The success or the funding, we actually don't uh, count the quality, so it's not quality dependent, but we do get monthly reports and quarterly reports about the uh, quality of the project that is being delivered. So in the case of Suka, how does the quality stack up to what they may have as a benchmark, which is to have a normal a civil servant teacher teaching a preschool class? The issues with the education in Orang Asli is that these children tend to maybe move from one village to another. So in one calendar year, they may not actually be in the same location. So I think that's one of the things that even as we were calculating the number of student beneficiaries, we had to factor that in, that not all the students actually were educated for the entire duration. So we, we had to apply, I guess, uh, either not count that student or, you know, discount it or something. So, you know, using a guideline for attendance. So in terms of that, I think the standard of education that they got uh, is actually, um, you know, for early childhood, it's actually really uh, pretty good and pretty comparable to um, other early childhood centres. Um, but the main aim of that actually, or what we were looking at, is just getting the Orang Asli children used to a school or a classroom environment so that when they enter uh, primary one or standard one, they would not feel so out of place. I think what we really wanted to do also with this reporting and regular reporting is to get a lot of foundations and CSR to be focused more on the outcomes. So a lot of times when we look at you know how grant making is done in Malaysia, it's very focused on use of funds. How are you going to use my money? Are you going to use it? How many percent goes to beneficiaries? How many percent is kept for OPEX? But I think when we think about how we fund startups, for example, how we fund commercial enterprises, we're a lot more focused on outcomes or profits, right? Than we are on how the funds will be used because we trust the founders and the management team to use it in the proportion that will create the best results. So I think this is what we really hope to see within our social sector, that SPOs get access to funding that is based on not 100% goes to beneficiaries, which actually doesn't make sense because that means that the whole SPO is run by volunteers, right? Um, but it is something that, you know, you, you kind of like trust them or they have the ability to manage their finances to deliver the maximum impact. So we, we, we don't, we want to shift the focus from like, are you using it to pay your salaries? Are you using it? How many percent is going to beneficiaries to what outcome are you achieving with the money that we give? Another of AIM's program is the Social Impact Exchange, or SIX, to list high-performing social enterprises and non-profits for them to report on their performance. What's the progress like for SIX? The Social Impact Exchange uh, is a work in progress, and it's a program that was launched in December 2017. The parallel would be, for example, in the stock exchange, if we list high commercially performing enterprises, then what is the equivalent for a high-impact social purpose organisation, right? How do we get that list? And why do we need a list such as the Social Impact Exchange? A lot of funding in the social sector is project-based. Social purpose organisations live from one project to another. And because they do that, they're unable to really strategically address long-term issues because their thinking and their funding is short-term. So how do we then attract long-term funding and long-term funders um, to the social purpose organisations. It is by building measurement, reporting, you know, that catalyzing 
the trust so that these social organisations are then able to deliver the longer term projects and the long term impact. Uh, we are listing social impact projects. So most of these have um, are the ones that AIM has worked with on the Social Outcome Fund or one of our previous projects, the Social Public Private Partnership. However, we are also working with uh, partners. So we work with Yais and Hasana and Magic and um, I think Impact Malaysia. So all of these um, organisations, they work with the SPOs at large and we are trying to work together with them to come up with a joint way to then accredit which of these are considered high-impact social purpose organisations. I believe, you know, Magic under the Ministry of Entrepreneurship Development has also come up with a framework for the social enterprise accreditation. So that's one part of the SPOs that we intend to work closer with. The programme has been around for about two years now, but I see less than 10 beneficiaries listed on the social impact exchange. What are some challenges getting more SPOs on board? A lot of private sector-driven initiatives, I guess the more organisations that are listed on the platform, the more, the bigger the community, the more benefit it is to the private sector organisation. But for us from the government, we actually had a conversation with PNB, which is one of the early adopters for this model, one of um, people who involved in the design. And they were saying that we actually should be focusing on quality. So in terms of the projects listed on the social impact exchange now, we have about, I think, 19 in total. And they're actually not the full organisation. They're just the projects, right? Funding for projects versus organisational core funding. We actually have not reached that stage yet where our foundations and CSR are actually comfortable to channel money into um, the organisation itself or into core funding. It's still very project-based. Why are investors still more keen to sponsor projects rather than fund the SBO as an organisation? This is a, a very uh, common issue and I think it, it's on both sides. So whenever we speak to corporates, they, they say that there is a lack of trust or um, in the organisations and they prefer to sort of like have everything itemised on how it's going to be used on a project basis. Um, and on the social organisation side, we also see not enough uh, strategic thinking skills um, in the organisation. So you brought up uh, you know, organisations like Teach for Malaysia. And um, I think these are the ones that actually do have a longer term plan, but they require funders to be able to understand the longer term vision instead of supporting on a smaller project basis. So it's one, it's trust on the organisations, on the funder side, and on the organisation side, also the skill set in long term strategy, financial management, and so on that we still don't see um, in abundance in the social sector. When I look at some of the project names, organisations, there are more newer organisations, for example, like Teach for Malaysia. I don't see like the more conventionally known charities like Magna. And I'm wondering, is there a reason for that? One of the things that uh, was a challenge for us last year was the, the fact that we, amongst a lot of our project partners, the leadership uh, had changed. So we kind of have to re-engage with the initial project partners and their new leadership. So I'm talking like Magic and Impact Malaysia to then see uh, where this uh, will grow. And another thing for us as well is um, Agency Innovasi Malaysia, the way that we do our projects is that we kickstart or we pilot and any model that then is then successful, we actually hand over to other parties uh, to take over. So for us, I think we are looking for you know, if the social impact exchange model is a viable one for then another third party or the relevant ministry agency or even the private sector to then take this project and scale it. This idea of a social impact exchange is not new. 
I recall there's one in South America, and I think Singapore tried it too. They've not been terribly successful. And I'm wondering how it might work this time around for Malaysia. Yeah, so when we uh, started the Social Impact Exchange, we also worked with some of the uh, foreign counterparts to do case studies of the existing models. So London has a social stock exchange, and I think IIX, the one based in Singapore, also has started that model. So I think for us, what we realised is we need the model to actually really match the growth of the social sector in Malaysia. Most, if not all, of the social funding is done project-based. We could not then design a social impact exchange that was corporation or organisation-based, but then still list the individual projects and have them scale up to, you know, to be one day full organisations listed on the six. It was great having you on our show. Thank you so much for your time. We just spoke with Melissa Fu, Head of Social Innovation Unit at Agency Innovasi Malaysia. I'm Noel Lim on Spotlight, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.